verses 1 to 25. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may, may know the certainty of things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them are righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worships worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will, be he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the children, the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thanks, John, for that reading. Uh, as you've already heard from Pete, uh, we're beginning a series, which will be the Term 1 series. We're looking at it over the next 10 weeks, moving through Luke 1 to 5. And so we're just looking at that uh, first section of uh, Chapter 1 tonight. There's a bit of an outline on the back of the bulletin. It may be helpful as we uh, move through this passage together. Uh, my name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, it's great to have you along. Uh, so let me pray for us as we come to God's Word now and ask that he'll Help us as we grapple with this tonight and apply it uh, for our own lives. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that your word is living and active, that you've breathed it out, uh, that it might challenge us, uh, that it might encourage us and comfort us. And we pray that you might do your work tonight as we sit under your word, that you might uh, challenge us and convict us afresh. Uh, Help us, we pray, to not only uh, hear your words, but to respond to them with a life of uh, faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from 1993 to about 1999, I worked for an engineering firm as an environmental scientist. And the main part of my role was really to carefully investigate sites uh, that there were proposed urban developments for. The reason we had to write them up and be quite accurate about them is sometimes um, our reports uh, would end up in a case before the Land and Environment Court. And at such points, uh, whatever had been written down would be dissected fairly closely and argued over. I can remember one particular case where uh, we were working on a very controversial development in Alambie Heights, which is above Manly Dam Reserve, a very picturesque um, protected area. Uh, The council had knocked back the development in the first round. Uh, The green groups were out in force and people had been chaining themselves to trees. There was a lot of friction and tension about this development and we knew that it was going to court before we wrote the report. So when I went to do the soils investigation for this site and write out my report, I was trying to be as exact as I could, uh, knowing that uh, not myself personally, but my boss would have to be the expert witness on the stand defending this report. And so I wanted to get it right for him. I also needed it to be accurate because of the arguments that we were making. Well, when it finally got to court, I was there to see what would unfold. And uh, thankfully, uh, things didn't focus on my report. As it turned out, some poor guy who was an expert on frogs was being grilled for hour after hour because the attention was on this rare green tree frog uh, that apparently frequented the site. And so the argument became about whether they could build a pipe across the development um, that he might have a safe passage across the site. And if such a pipe was built, whether the frog would use it. Now, look, I was thankful for that. I wasn't sure how good his report was going to hold up, but I was thankful mine wasn't being raked over. But I had spent a lot of time carefully investigating and documenting what we needed to say. You see, in the opening verses of Luke's gospel, he provides an introduction about the lengths that he went to to record an orderly account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it raises the trustworthiness of God's word right at the beginning of the gospel. And not only do the opening four verses do that, but the story that he then dives into straight after that raises the same question. This drama that will unfold in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So the big question that our passage raises that I want us to consider tonight is this. Why can we trust God's word? Why can we trust God's word? That brings me to the first point, point one on your outline, uh, John's birth and role predicted. So notice again how uh, the gospel starts from verse one. Luke writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. You see, we learn in these opening verses that Luke had carefully investigated. 
uh, before he wrote this gospel. And he spells out what that careful investigation involved. Uh, Notice that he's aware, verse 1, of other accounts that have already been written about the life of Jesus. Uh, There may be lots of uh, bits or accounts that we don't have access to today. But most commentators argue that amongst the things that he may have been able to see would have been Matthew and Mark's Gospels, which we understand to have been written earlier than Luke. And so he would have had access to them, presumably. Uh, Notice also that he notes how their accounts were dependent upon eyewitnesses. So although Luke himself is not an eyewitness, he can have trusted accounts that he can put together his gospel record. And this is important. You know, we learn um, elsewhere that Luke would have been pretty good at carefully investigating things. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament that he was a doctor. Uh, Presumably he carefully Uh, investigated people's health issues before he prescribed anything. He's only an eyewitness to the later events in Acts, which is his volume two, if you like. You know, he's an eyewitness then because he's off on the missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul. But for the gospel, for the life of Jesus, he's not one of the 12 apostles. And so he needed to depend on other eyewitness accounts. Notice too in verses three and four that he recorded this account for Theophilus. Now, as soon as we read this guy's name, we think uh, this is a Gentile name. This is not a Jewish man. In fact, uh, the title that's given to him, most excellent, uh, was reserved always for Roman political officials. So this is somebody of high standing, somebody that had importance in the Roman world. And notice his purpose of writing in the first instance to this guy is he wants to create certainty for him about things that he's already been taught. Now, it's an apologetic as a result. He's writing a defense of the gospel. He's wanting to lay it out really clearly so this guy can be sure. Now, commentators often surmise as a result that either one, he was a new Christian but was having some doubts or needed to be affirmed further in his faith, or maybe he was somebody that heard a lot about Jesus to this point already, but he had yet to be convinced. And so Luke is writing to persuade him of the truth of the gospel. More than that, he's not just writing to Theophilus. Um, He's assuming a wider audience. How do we know that? Well, often you would write an account of something to somebody important in that day because it would give it a wider hearing. If you were to write it to a highly ranked Gentile, then hopefully it would spread through him to others in his Gentile circles. And so the gospel would go out even further. And see, after this introduction, which points to the trustworthiness of what's written... Uh, Luke immediately dives into this story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And nothing could be further away than this sort of official Roman-type intro than this life embedded in Jewish culture, which would have been very strange to a man like Theophilus, presumably. I mean, in verses 5 to 9, it's like we've got a second introduction because we're going to learn about this couple and hear something of their background as suddenly we're introduced to them. Of course, as you read there, you learn that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of them, are descended from Aaron. Well, who's Aaron? Well, he's Moses' brother, the great leader of Israel that had taken the nation out of Egypt. And Aaron, his brother, becomes the head of the priestly line. Everyone in the line of Aaron would be able to serve before God in, first of all, the tabernacle or tent, and then later the temple when it was built. And so these people would have been held in high standing. They've got an important role in the community. They would have been respected. But all the more so, notice, because we're told that they're blameless. They 
meet all the commands and regulations. They're very keen to obey God's word to them. And as we read of this couple, we think, wow, this is um, a great couple. And then suddenly this tension enters the story because if they're so blameless, then surely they would enjoy the blessing of God in their life. And yet we learn that they're old and yet without an heir. They're childless, which was seen as a great loss in Jewish society of that day. And we're meant to be reminded straight away of other Old Testament couples who had faced this situation. Think Abraham and Sarah. Think Elkanah and Hannah. Hannah eventually having a son, Samuel, that's dedicated to the Lord. And so there's this tension within the story. How can they be blameless people? Uh, They're serving God, and yet this is happening. What's God going to do in this situation? And then suddenly we're into the midst of this situation in the temple. Uh, He's part of one of the divisions of Aaron's descendants. It's their turn to be serving in the temple There's Zechariah doing his job, but suddenly an angel appears and he has this startling encounter where he's given this message that goes right to the heart of this tension in the opening verses. Have a look with me from verse 13. Here we've got John's birth prophesied. Do not be afraid, says the angel to Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, it's a stunning message for this guy in his old age. Clearly unexpected. He's gripped with fear, we're told, as this unfolds. But notice that firstly here that John's birth is prophesied. The angel is announcing that Elizabeth and Zachariah are going to have a son, John. It's going to bring them great joy and delight. We think, well, God has answered the prayer and done something amazing for this family, but God's interest is far wider than just this particular family, as wonderful as that is. This is for the nation. This has got to do with his unfolding plan of salvation. This is preparing the way for one far greater who will come. And so we get this description of his role. It's foreshadowed for us. Notice the nature of that ministry spelt out in verse 16 and 17. In verse 17, there's that phrase, um, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What's he referring to? Well, it goes back to an Old Testament prophecy, specifically Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses, verses 5 and 6. They'll come up on the screen. Notice what the prophet wrote. This is four centuries earlier. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So notice Luke 1 17 is is a paraphrase of these closing verses in Malachi. But before we come to the meaning, how they inform us about John's role, we really need to think, take a step back. Who is this Elijah figure that he is to be like? Well, of course, 
Elijah is arguably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He's the number one. He came at the most uh, low point of the northern kingdom, places in crisis. King Ahab, the most idolatrous king that ever was, is ruling. More than that, he's married Queen Jezebel, who's from another nation, who's a leading Baal worshipper. The place is a disaster and God sends Elijah. Why? Because he's going to drag those who will listen back to obedience. They're to repent, to turn away from their sin, come back to God. And we're being told here that this will be John the Baptist's role too. He's going to be just like this. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy of Malachi that God would send an Elijah figure. How do we know that? Well, Jesus tells us quite directly elsewhere in Matthew 11 from verse 13. Jesus says to a crowd that are listening to him at that point, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, that is John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So this turning of the hearts of the parents and the children toward each other, this moving the disobedient back to the wisdom of the righteous, this description is all about here is a ministry of repentance. He's to call the people back. It's about them moving back towards the Lord in their daily lives. And all of this is preparation. It's preparing the way for this king that will come, this royal one who is soon to appear, this Christ figure who will be far greater than this Elijah figure. Kings always have those that go before them. I remember uh, back in 2010, I was part of a short-term mission team from our church that went over to Thailand. Uh, we were going to support the work of the Gravitas family that we've been partnering with over there for some time. And we had a couple of weeks in Chiang Mai. And if royalty uh, visits Chiang Mai, because Thailand's one of many countries still today that have a royal family, if they visit, then you know about it. Uh, no stone is left unturned. And so um, there was a famous abbot, the head of a big Buddhist temple in Chiang Mai who had died. And so the funeral was to take place. And the princess, the daughter of the king, was coming. Well, she arrived by helicopter. But before she was going to arrive, we had flyovers from the Air Force um, sort of scanning the area, I guess. By the time she'd landed, she was into a motorcade of black SUVs and other cars, and they'd cut off nearly every street in the center of Chiang Mai. Make way, here comes the princess. She must be able to walk straight to the door of the temple, as it were. When you have royalty, there are always those that go before them. And see, John's role is that he will do that in readiness for Jesus' coming. Prepare the way of the king, the awaited Christ. Now, with all that in mind, uh, remember the big question that I started with was, why is it that we can trust God's word? And I think what we've seen in these opening 17 verses is not only is the Bible being carefully put together. Luke, in his account, has put together in detail eyewitness accounts from those who first saw and related with Jesus. But we can also trust God's word, as we've already seen to this point, because God fulfills promises, unbelievably long-distance promises. This is 400 years later. Malachi says an Elijah figure will come. Here is Zechariah, unbeknownst to him, in the temple, been praying with his wife about a child, and an angel appears and says that Elijah figure that they would have known about as good Jews in the priestly line, 400 years, you will be the father of this one. 
startling. And the question for Zechariah and Elizabeth is, are we going to believe this? Do we trust God's word to us now? Can this really happen? Well, that leads me to the second point. Point two on your outline. John's parents respond to God's word. So notice what happens. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. And now you'll be silent, not able to speak to you, able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I think we're a bit struck by this moment because here's Zachariah a bit uncertain about what has just been said to him. And humanly speaking, we can empathize. Put yourself in his shoes. 400 years they've been waiting for this figure. He's an old man. He's just doing his duty in the temple. And suddenly the angel appears before him and says, this is going to happen. I think we'd be shocked too and a bit struggling with the moment here, with doubts entering our mind. Really, can this happen? But you notice here, Gabriel does not see this as a polite inquiry. He sees this as a lack of faith. You do not believe my words. You don't believe you'll be struck dumb as a result. Well, in contrast, Elizabeth at the end of our section, verses 24 and 25, receives the news as well. And she's far more responsive and positive to it. She's thankful, grateful to the Lord that he has shown favor to her taken away as she sees it her disgrace amongst the people contrasting responses why should Zachariah have believed God's word to him here well have a look again a little bit more closely at the angel's words verses 19 and 20 firstly the certainty of the message is asserted by identifying the messenger this is a previously anonymous angel to this point, and suddenly he announces, I am Gabriel. And Gabriel has credentials. Uh, the Jewish people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, we've been, been well aware, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, that he has appeared and revealed the future of what's going to happen in the nation of Israel already. Gabriel identifies himself as one who stands in the presence of the Lord. He's saying, I'm a leading angel, or as we call it, an archangel. And the inference is that his words must be accepted because if a messenger speaks for God, God has spoken. Don't doubt it. But I think, again, we're, we're forced to go back and consider the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham and Sarah faced this moment too, and they were struggling with it. Sarah laughed that this could be possible. But they were shown, they learned that nothing is impossible with the Lord. Again, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have known that story better than most. And further, Gabriel says, well, you'll know it's God's word because it is going to happen. It will happen at its appointed time. And it's like he gives him a sign, in a sense, by making him mute. Zechariah needed to accept that when God's messenger speaks, God speaks. And you can be sure that he'll be faithful to his word. God's word is always fulfilled. 
And so we've got to wholeheartedly trust it. Now, I think our struggle here is that when it comes to promises, we think of our own promises or other promises that people have made to us. And we know that people are frail and fickle and they don't follow through at times. They're not always faithful to what they say they'll do. My wife, Christine, tells me that when we went on one of our first dates, I'd arranged to pick her up at 7 p.m. and we were going out to dinner. Uh, apparently, she was sitting on the end of the lounge waiting at 5 to 7. And the only problem was I didn't turn up to about 7.30. Uh, I did know that it was that day and that I was picking her up, but somehow I'd got caught up in things and was late. Um, I arrived. Uh, she was none too pleased. She naturally asked, where have you been? And I said, well, um, I was watching TV and I, I sort of lost track of the time. She said, watching TV? Surely you could have made up a better excuse than that at least. You think I'm going to believe you next time you say you're arriving at 7 o'clock? My failure at punctuality made her less inclined to believe my promises. See, we've all had experiences of being let down by people and just not following through. Sometimes because we can't follow through, we don't control the next moment. But God is not like us. We are made in the image of God, but God does not fail to keep his promises like we often do. God always fulfills, always perfectly timed his way. And that brings me to a final response. Point three, our response to God's word today. See, as we think about this a bit more deeply for ourselves, I think the first thing we've got to reflect on is God's character. Here's two ways that you're not like God. Uh, one, God is sovereign over all events. He can ensure that his word is fulfilled because there's nothing that can thwart it. If he says it, then he can make it happen. And God is in control. He's not restricted by our limitations. He's not going to break his leg tomorrow and not make it to the thing he promised the next day. But secondly, as we've already seen, he's faithful to his promises. And it's not just in this instance. The whole Old Testament is like a statement of God's track record. Over and over and over again, God says, I will do this, and he does it every time. And so I think we need to see that God will always work out his purposes. Indeed, his greatest promise, his greatest promise to you is salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus. And that is a promise that began in the third chapter of the Bible. We get the first hint of the gospel in Genesis 3. Indeed, it was God's plan before the creation of the world. But he worked that out over centuries, indeed millennia. Look at Genesis 3 with me, verse 15. God speaking to Satan says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, in fulfillment of his word, many centuries later, God sent his son. And this offspring of Eve, humanly speaking, was struck by Satan in his death, although that was a death ordained by God the Father for us. But that death not only brought us forgiveness, to forgiveness to fallen humanity, but it defeated Satan. It crushed him through Christ's sacrificial actions. Victory once and for all. And Paul could draw together those strands that would take millennia to unfold, that God's promises come in crystal clarity 
for their perfect end. Colossians 2. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is Satan and his minions, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God keeps promises, long-term promises. But perhaps as you listen today, you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus. Or maybe you have, but you've really been struggling with doubts in the last little while. Perhaps you're even struggling to accept the greatest of these problems, uh, promises that God has truly forgiven you, that he really has given you eternal life if you've placed your faith in his son. We can struggle sometimes. You might say, well, look, you know, if I had seen Jesus, if I had been there 2,000 years ago or an angel had appeared to me, well, then, you know, it would be easier to believe. But you're asking me to put my whole life on the line based on these words in a page, to trust what is written about these amazing events. It's a big ask, one might argue. I want to put it to you that you do that kind of thing all the time in daily life. One example, if you go to a doctor, let's say at a medical center, you're probably going to visit somebody that you have never met before. I imagine if you've done that, you haven't asked for their qualifications before they assess you. And they will work out what they believe is wrong with you, write down for you a script. You may not be able to read what's on that script. They may have a drug there that's got 25 letters in it. You've got no, it could have been in another language. And you take that to a pharmacist, again, who you may never have met in your life. You hand over your bit of paper, believing that they will go and find the right drug and hand that to you. And you're going to go home, say, with this bottle of tablets, and you're going to ingest the name of something that you can't pronounce, believing that it will heal you, not knowing what impact it will have on your body. Well, I put it to you, how much more can we trust God's infallible word? It's been consistently fulfilled. People have been trusting in it for centuries. Billions of them have. And on top of that, on top of God's sovereign power, his proven track record of faithfulness, if we need more personal affirmation that God will keep his promise, then God offers that too. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 1, Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So you could say both externally in God's written word and internally through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, God has given you every reason to trust him, trust his word to you. So what should our response be? Well, we've really got to wholeheartedly give ourselves to God to trust and obey his word, to really believe it, to pray expectantly as a result daily, to not pray like Zechariah and then be shocked that God might have answered my prayer, albeit perhaps some years down the track in their case. See, if we're serious, we'll stop trusting in our own strength. I think our problem 
with giving ourselves totally to God and his promises is that we really believe we need to sort it out. Our society, our culture tells us that all the time. You can do it. You can work it out. It's up to you. You don't need to pray about that. Surely you've got great intelligence. You've been trained. You can work out that problem. Well, certainly God gives us abilities, but he causes us, calls us to trust in the one that actually controls every moment rather in yourself who doesn't know what's going to happen in the next minute. Well, let me give some examples of people that have done that. Uh, there's the famous example of William Booth. He's the founder of the Salvation Army. He once got to meet Queen Victoria in London and the Queen said to him, what is the secret of your success? Uh, the Salvation Army was growing exponentially. Many people were being helped through his efforts and many others that stood with him. There was great need in London. What is your secret? William Booth said, I guess it's the fact that God has all of me. Another famous example of someone who fully devoted themselves to trusting God, trusting his promises, was the Bible commentator Matthew Henry. If you've never heard of him, there are very few people that have written a commentary centuries ago who they still bother printing today, but they do with his. Matthew Henry lived his whole life in light of the Bible, taking it as truth and living by it, but also by a little creed that his father gave him when he was very young. And the creed goes like this. I take God the Father to be my God. I take God the Son to be my Savior. I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier. I take the Word of God to be the rule of my life. And I take God's people as my people. And I do hereby dedicate and yield my whole self to the Lord. I do this deliberately, freely, forever. It's a pretty good creed. I started with the question, why can we trust God's word? Well, I think the answer comes in several ways in this passage. Firstly, God saw to it that what was recorded was done carefully in an orderly way by those who were eyewitnesses who saw and recorded what God was doing. Secondly, God is a promise-keeping God. That is his thing. He's been doing it since time began. He never fails to fulfill his word. If he says it, it will happen. And he shows it again in Zechariah and Elizabeth. And lastly, our forgiveness, our future inheritance, if we've placed our trust in Jesus, is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted in Christ, then God will affirm his truths to you because he's granted you himself i want to encourage you tonight that your life may be characterized by the kind of devotion that matthew henry had somebody that had an unfailing trust in what he saw as god's infallible unshakable word that's what god has granted us will you join me in praying let's pray Father God, 